0: This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info, and now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal.
1: Hi, friend. Welcome to this episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. So, you know, last week we had uh, Dr. Ettinger and we were talking about what is obesity in children. We decided to actually split it up in two parts so that we can discuss what is obesity in children. And, you know, today we're going to talk about what does obesity cause in children, like the detrimental effects or the positive effects, if you have any. I want to welcome back Dr. Ettinger. Now, for those of you who do not know, Dr. Ettinger was actually practicing as a pediatric nephrologist until recently, and he has been doing so for the last 17 years at Hackensack University Medical Center in northern New Jersey. You know, during his years of practice, he's so many patients struggling with obesity. And as we discussed last time, he mentioned that a lot of times children with hypertension, with other complications would be referred to him for management of, of these disorders to see if there was any kidney problem causing these complications. But the more patients he saw, the more he found that, you know, obesity was playing such a big role. So he kind of decided to delve deep into this and got certified in obesity medicine. And now he's practicing as a pediatric obesity specialist. He got both certified in obesity medicine through the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And last year, he started Dr. Habib War, which offers telemedicine visits for pediatric obesity in New York and New Jersey. He has a blog also for parents so that they can learn more about plant-based eating. And he also has a Facebook group for education and entertainment. Welcome back, Dr. Ettinger. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thank you so much. So last week we talked about, you know, what really is obesity in children. And I think it's so important to understand because if we do not know what obesity is, and it's very hard to kind of treat something we don't know about, right? And you had raised a very valid study. The study showed that nearly 50% of the parents did not, were not able to recognize obesity in children. And that is such a crucial thing to understand. Let's just you know talk about what really causes obesity in children. We were having this discussion before we started recording about the causes of obesity, and I just wanted you to kind of lay it out
2: for our listeners. Yes, well, I think the cause of obesity in children is very much the same as the cause of obesity for everyone. And it's a problem that we don't belong here. We're in a condition called evolutionary mismatch now. I'm a big fan of evolution. I've been actually studying evolution for a long time. I'm proud to say that I had a in elementary school I had my fossil collection on display at the local public library. I was into dinosaurs long before it was cool. That was in the 80s and then in 1993 Jurassic Park came out and everyone was like, "Oh, we love dinosaurs." I said, I've been loving dinosaurs for a long time. So I really love dinosaurs and evolution. I named my son Charles <laughs> so I'm really into evolutionary theory. and so I came across this theory called evolutionary mismatch, and it basically says that there a can be a problem for a species when the species doesn't match the environment. And the classic example is the peppered moths from England in the 1800s. So these lightly colored pepper moths were living in the light forests of England with birchwood, I assume. And they were happily buzzing around and being camouflaged. And every once in a while, a dark moth would be born, and the dark moth resting on the light wood would be easily spotted by the birds and be eaten before it could have baby dark moths. And so there was a equilibrium there. But then in the 1800s, in the mid-1800s, England went through its industrial revolution, and the factories started spilling soot all over the forests. And All of a sudden, the light wood became darkened with the soot, and now the light moths are easily visible, resting on the branches and trunks, and the birds are eating them all up. And then what happened was that every once in a while, a dark moth would be born, and now the dark moth has perfect camouflage. And what happened in the late 1800s was that you could go into the forest and only see dark moths. The white moths had disappeared. Because there was an evolutionary mismatch, they no longer were able to be camouflaged. So, if you look at humans, we've been around for two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand years, and for most of that time, calories were scarce, and we had to work really hard to find calories. And so, our brain has this calorie instinct, calorie-seeking instinct, and we also get rewarded when we find some calories. We get all these happy gene, happy hormones in our brain, dopamine and serotonin and opioids in our brain that tell us, oh, you made a good choice, you ate something that was highly caloric or or caloric, you're going to survive for another day. So we have this system set up until the past few decades or the past few hundred years when there is calories everywhere and our brain is still in this mode that we have to hunt down and gather as much calories for the upcoming famine, but the famine's not coming. So we're in this bad, for us, evolutionary mismatch because before a you know, hundred thousand years ago, a caveman opening a fridge and seeing an apple or an apple pie to, and could only eat one, the proper choice would be the apple pie to get as many calories in as possible. But in 2022, opening the fridge and picking the apple pie over the apple has now become a problem for us. And we have an obesity epidemic and heart disease and diabetes and hypertension. And the problem is that our brain still thinks it's making the right choice as we eat these highly caloric foods. So basically it's no one's fault. Would you blame the lightly colored peppered moth in the dark forest for being eaten by the bird? No. And I wouldn't blame a young person for becoming obese because of the situation that we're in. That's my answer.
1: Yeah, you is a valid point that, you know, it's nobody's fault. And a lot of times what happens with obesity is that the fault is kind of put on the person who's suffering from obesity, right? And we're going to talk about the impact that obesity has on our kids, on the younger population. But I think before that, let's just talk about a very important thing. We had left off last time talking about you know the BMI, the trends, and we have to look at how the trends are going, whether they're going in the right direction or the wrong direction. But one of the common questions that do come to people's minds are, can my kid outgrow obesity?
2: There are studies looking at that, and unfortunately, it looks like the answer is that they're not likely to outgrow the obesity. There was a study reported in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago looking at three-year-olds who are obese, and 90% of them were still obese at age 18. And then there was another study that looked at teenagers and tracked them through to their 30s, and obese teenagers, teenagers with obesity, had an 87% chance to still be obese when they were in their 30s. So unfortunately, at this time, it looks like people are and those are older studies, so and the problem is persisting. It looks like people are not outgrowing their obesity.
1: I see, but this is without any intervention, correct? And that's why we have pediatric obesity. Right, 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 right. So let's just talk about where we left off about the detrimental effects of obesity on children, both long term and short term. I think short term, a lot of times we look at the weight and we see that as a problem. But what do you see in your practice as the the struggles that the pediatric patients have with obesity?
2: Yeah, certainly the problems that you're seeing, you have seen for years in the adult population, like type 2 diabetes, like hypertension, are starting to happen in the younger children. That's for sure, and that's very concerning. But there are also problems when you're thinking about obesity. A lot of it is about risk factors, increasing the risk of problems over years and decades. And since some of these problems do take years and decades to develop, starting with obesity at a younger age just increases the risk over time. But for the young people with obesity, there are problems that are possibly happening to them right now that I worry about, even if they haven't developed hypertension or diabetes yet. Things like pressure on growing bones and young joints, there are studies that show that young people with obesity have more foot pains. They have balance problems, uh, more knee pains and hip problems, which can also impact your guidance. Like you want to tell someone with obesity to, oh, go for walks or go for a jog or go for a run or go to the gym. But if they're having these lower extremity or balance issues because of the weight, then not going to want to do these things that you're suggesting. So that's why if someone with obesity at a young age, I recommend more swimming or yoga or things that are low impact or stationary bike, things like that. So it's important to take into account that that what might be happening with their young bones and joints.
1: Yeah, and it's important to understand that it's not just about the short-term impact that's occurring, but these are developing bones. So if they're going to have a deformity and they develop in a deformed way, then that's a long-term problem that they're gonna face. Right, and makes it harder for
2: them to exercise, which is one of the recommendations people do to prevent or reduce obesity.
1: Yeah, and so we have these short-term problems, and of course we have this body image problem that comes along with this, right? The social stigma that they face. What do you see in your practice?
2: Right, certainly there are concerns about mental health issues among young people with obesity. The other kids, unfortunately, can be cruel. And then also there are studies that show that teachers, and not just the gym teacher, but that the math teacher or the reading teacher can also have stigma associated about how hard a 10th grader with obesity will work, things like that. So there's biases that can be affecting the kids in school too.
1: Yeah. And we had discussed a little bit about you know, the obesity paradox in children. But I think the negatives far outweigh the positive, but I think we should still talk about the positives at least.
2: Right. Well, I don't know if the obesity paradox has been shown in childhood studies. Again, there just aren't a lot of childhood obesity studies, unfortunately. So a lot of what we gather is from the adult literature. So, yeah, you mentioned the obesity paradox, where sometimes in these studies, the people with the higher BMIs tend to live longer or have less problems. And there could be a few reasons why that is, but I think. It's been kind of debunked in that, well, some of the reasons why it might be is because, and I would see this as a pediatric nephrologist and studying the nephrology literature like someone on dialysis, for sure, that's a tough life to live. And if you have some more fat stores, you can live longer just because every dialysis session is like a marathon. It's really a lot of wear and tear in the body. And the tiny person who has poor nutrition is not going to survive as well. So, again, that would be in the adult population and not such an issue in the pediatric population for survival on dialysis. But yeah, so there are other studies that show that well, actually I don't know if I believe this one, but there are some studies that show that doctors perhaps take better care of people with obesity in studies because they believe maybe they're at increased risk for developing problems because of their obesity. But then you see other studies where doctors spend less time with an obese patient, for example, or don't bring up the obese weight issue at all with a patient. So yeah, a mixed message in that respect. But I think what the obesity paradox boils down to is people have been looking at the recruitment for such studies where the obesity paradox seems to happen. And maybe, you know, if you have a whole bunch of smokers in the study, then smokers tend to weigh less. And if they get sick or die from their smoking-related illness, that, that can make the group with obesity look healthier. And then Also, someone who's perhaps losing weight because of some wasting disease like HIV or cancer or something like that, that that can skew the results also. So my impression of the obesity paradox is that it's thought to be due to improper recruitment screening tools.
1: I see. And what about, you know, we talk about a lot of times this comes up, actually, in medical discussions is a metabolically healthy, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. people with obesity And what that basically means for our listeners is that people whose metabolic profile, when they check, for example, the lipid profile, this and that, looks pretty good, their blood pressure is good, but they are not at the BMI or, you know, at the body fat percentage or whatever that they should be. So they're clinically being diagnosed as having obesity, but they do not have the other metabolic problems that come along with that. And there are some thoughts about, you know, well, you know, if we do not have these metabolic problems, then... Obesity is not a problem. Where do you stand on that, and where do studies stand on that? Yeah, I've met a lot of patients, young people like that,
2: where they come in the office with uh, very elevated BMIs, but their blood pressure is normal, liver function studies are normal, their blood sugar is normal. Everything is apparently in order. And it's surprising for sure because we've been taught, oh, all these bad things are going to happen. But then you got to talk to them about the risks, saying, because there are studies that do show that over the years and decades, these metabolically healthy, people will go on and have greater risks of these outcomes like diabetes or hypertension. But then it's also, even though they're metabolically healthy at that point, it's also good to get into these other issues like, oh, how are your joints? How's your sleeping? Because it's been shown that 60% of teenagers with obesity have some form of obstructive sleep apnea, which can affect their grades, can make them tired in schools that they can focus as well. And so how are they sleeping? Or, like I mentioned, how are the joints? But also, another question I might ask, or I should be asking, or I do ask, (laughs) another question I do ask is, are you wearing your seatbelt? Because it's been shown that people with obesity have a greater risk of a bad outcome in a motor vehicle collision because the G-forces are based on body mass. So someone with obesity is going to hit the seatbelt or hit the dashboard or hit the windshield with much greater force just because of their body mass index. And some people aren't wearing a seatbelt with obesity because it's uncomfortable or it sits across their armpit or across their neck or it doesn't sit properly on them. So even if I'm sitting there with someone who's obese by definition, but metabolically normal, there are still other issues to go through like that. And I recommend there are seatbelt extenders like you get on the airplane. I recommend that families contact the auto manufacturer. It's, you shouldn't make your own or or necessarily, or, you know, buy them online, but contact the manufacturer so that you get a properly fitting seatbelt extender so that the seatbelt will sit properly and provide the best restraint for someone with obesity. So for all those reasons, yeah, it's definitely important still to talk about obesity and address obesity with the patients. And teenagers go through a lot of phases and that metabolically healthy, obese teenager might just be going through a phase too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, if you look at the whole picture from a long-term perspective, I don't think that the metabolically healthy obese actually holds true. This whole phenomenon of metabolically healthy obese holds true, but um, but at that point in time, it may look great. Right. Uh,
2: right. You can certainly you can look for inflammatory markers, which might be a precursor. There might be epigenetic phenomenon going on too. So right, it might just be a phase that this teenager is going through. Right before, before problems develop.
1: <laughs> we talked about the deformities that kids can have, especially you know, when they're growing and they're trying to balance their center of gravity and the way they balance themselves, they may have deformities for these growing bones. But obviously, if you're putting more weight, more stress, that's also going to lead to stronger bones, wouldn't it? That is the thinking, but there's a problem that you might
2: have stronger bones, but when you fall, your G-forces are going to be higher. So in the balance, which is going to help you out, the stronger bone or the harder fall because you're heavier. And there is a study out of Spain of some toddlers where the toddlers with a higher body mass index were suffering more wrist fractures from falls than toddlers with a normal body mass index. So, yeah, in the elderly, I know there are studies that show that a higher body mass index will help strengthen bones. But again, I do wonder which is going to get you first or which benefit will outweigh the danger. Will your stronger bones help you on a heavier fall?
1: I think that's very important because, you know, we look at these individual things that may be beneficial about obesity. But overall, I think the overarching consensus would be that it is definitely detrimental. And I think that is something that definitely needs to be tackled. Yeah. um, Thinking about the balance of things. Also, people with obesity
2: tend to do better in the cold. So, there's less risk of frostbite, less risk of cold injury due to the insulating effect of subcutaneous fat. But then, on the other hand, they suffer more in the heat. So, there's increased risk of heat stroke and heat related complications. So, again, because of the greater insulation that the obesity provides. So, right, there's uh, it's almost like an informed consent. You want to always consider the risks and benefits of everything.
1: Right. Well, this has been an interesting discussion, Dr. Ettinger. I think I had a lot of fun today. I hope you did too. So, Dr. Ettinger, how can people find you and work with you? So, I have the Dr.
2: Herbivore website, all spelled out drherbivore.com. And on the website, yes, I do have the blog where I write about some of these issues and some entertaining, some educational content. I have the Dr. Herbivore Facebook group where I'll be hosting live online events so that I'll be presenting on a topic. These will be free online events. You can sign up on the Facebook group or on the website onto my mailing list so you can get notified. And we're going to go over various topics about obesity, about the evolutionary mismatch we're in. I'm going to have some special guests, some experts in the field. There will be some paid premium content, but hopefully there'll be a lot of good content for you to learn about these topics.
1: Yeah, I'm going to leave a link to you know your blog and your website. Uh, definitely in my show notes. Well, this has been a very fun discussion. I hope you had fun too, Dr. Ettinger. Thank you so much for joining me again for this episode. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining in. I'll see you all next time.
0: You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.